Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Girlfriend. Written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Matthew Sweet. Sweet will join us later in the show to unpack his process of writing power pop gems like Girlfriend, The Ugly Truth, Sick of Myself, and many others. Part one. Well, we've got this conversation coming up with Matthew Sweet today, who's someone that, that you and I were both into in, in the 90s and kind of formative for us, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, Matthew's one of those guys who uh, I consider him, you know, uh, if you say that you're into his music, it's kind of like, oh, that's cool. That's <laughs> right. a cool band to listen to. And and I was kind of heartened in listening to this interview to find that Matthew himself is into a lot of cool bands. Like, he's right. sort of into all the bands that you ought to be into. Right. You know, he would reference Elvis Costello and R.E.M. and, and some right. of these bands that, to me as a young guy, th- these were the cool bands. Right. And not only did he listen to them, like, he was buddies with Michael Stipe. And he's like, yeah, Peter Buck made me a mixtape. I'm like, okay, that's incredibly cool. With, with Graham Parsons on one side and Sid Barrett on the other. Exactly. The mixtape itself was... That's a dead art form, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that I mentioned to him, and I kind of wanted to touch on in this section of, of the podcast, is that I think there should be a subgenre of music referred to as older brother rock. <laughs> and to me, that's the music that like that people sort of like found by listening to their older brother's records when the brother wasn't there right the bands that maybe you didn't know about but you maybe the album cover scared you right you (laughs) thought you should give it a listen right right yeah bands that if you didn't listen to your older brother might beat you up yeah but if he found you listening to him he might beat you up (laughs) (laughs) well i I think older brother rock is obviously different for every generation of course you know i think for uh you know one thing about older brother rock is it tends to be like cooler than what you were listening to before. Yes. It's like the older brother is the portal into like a world that's uh, a little uh, darker maybe. And, you know, a little like, obviously I, I didn't have an older brother, but I remember in, in junior high school, uh, my friend, Matt Henning, he had an older brother who was like five years older and the older brother drove a Mustang. First of all, there you go, which is like impossibly cool. Yeah. Definite like cool older brother. Uh, but I remember I uh, learned about the band The Cult. Oh, there uh, you go. Yeah, from from Matt Henning's older brother, which yeah. I got really into. Uh, I remember um, he had like a Keith Richards poster oh. on the wall in his bedroom. Yeah. So we were probably in like seventh, eighth grade, and this guy was probably like a senior in high school. I feel like a fold-out double live album is kind of uh, usually associated with older brother rock. Kiss Alive would definitely be an older <laughs> brother rock record. I think Frampton Comes Alive probably is too for a lot of generations. See, I didn't have an older brother either. I had an older sister, and it, which is interesting because uh, I, I found out about the Indigo Girls from her. Right. And older like, sister rock. Yeah. Ricky Lee Jones. 
Um, <laughs> I found out about Gino Vanelli. You guys Ricky Lee look- Jones is a huge question mark for me. I got to <laughs> <I gotta> admit. <laughs> uh, Chucky's in love, man. Uh, and and I remember uh, you know, our, our mutual friend Elizabeth McKnight had a cool older brother. And I remember going through his records, too. Yeah, Lee McKnight. Yeah. Highly influential on us and probably never had any idea. No, but definitely. Like, I don't know if I've carry- ever met Lee McKnight. Oh, like he I, was like mysteriously off at college for a long time. Yeah, he was a big deal though. You yeah, know, as far as older brothers go, and uh, carry his backpack maybe with one strap. Yeah, like, he was a big like Elvis Costello guy. Definitely made uh, yeah. made mixtapes uh, big time for Elizabeth, which then got passed on to us. You know, through that since she was our peer. That was a, you. You talk about a thing, man. Having a mixtape in your hands in the 90s and you didn't recognize the writing on it yeah because you weren't sure how many generations it had passed down to get to you right but it started it all started with somebody's older brother yeah and it's got toe the wet sprocket on it and you're like (laughs) i think i'm supposed to like this but i don't know if i do (laughs) but i don't want to tell anybody because then they'll think i'm dumb for not getting it don't ever tell somebody you don't like an older brother rock band (laughs) right it's over for you yeah don't act like you don't know who big star is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you're not into the cure, <laughs> right. don't come around here no more. <laughs> so, if any of you listening right now have I- any older brother rock bands or artists that that were formative for you, uh, feel free to send them in. We'd love to uh, to know who your older brothers were into. This is gonna make us feel old, isn't it? Uh, everything makes us feel old. <laughs> Part two. Best known for hits such as Girlfriend and Sick of Myself, Matthew Sweet is a melodically oriented rock tunesmith who was at the center of the 1990s power pop revival. After befriending R.E.M., the native Nebraskan relocated to Georgia, where he joined Michael Stipe's sister Linda's band, OOK, and launched his own group, Buzz of Delight. Sweet eventually launched his solo career from New York and then Los Angeles, earning gold certification for his albums Girlfriend and 100% Fun. The latter was named one of the year's best by Entertainment Weekly, and Sweet has gone on to release a dozen more critically acclaimed solo albums. Additionally, he has collaborated on a series of cover song projects with Susanna Hoffs, as well as on an album of original material in collaboration with Sean Mullins and Pete Droge under the name The Thorns. As a songwriter, Matthew has collaborated with The Jayhawks, Hanson, Michael Stipe, Chris Stamey, and Jules Shear, with whom he wrote the title track for Till Tuesday's album Everything's Different Now. His most recent album is titled Wicked System of Things. Cause you need to get back in the arms of a good friend. And I need to get back in the arms of a good friend. Matthew, welcome to Songcraft. Great to be here, thanks. So tell us a bit about where you grew up and what kind of music you were surrounded by as a kid that shaped your earliest instincts as a musician and songwriter. Okay, well, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I actually live in Omaha now, but for a lot last 20 years I lived in Los Angeles. Um, but I grew up in Lincoln, which is a college town. Um, when I was, you know, really young, I would listen to the radio, Top 40 radio from probably mostly kind of the late 70s. Um, I remember, you know, hearing like My Sharona on the radio and uh, uh, by The Knack and uh, Joe Jackson. Is she really going out with him? Is that yeah. what it's called? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's been a while. So I did hear, you know, some stuff that was kind of cool, like what I would get into later. And then I had a brother five years older than me, and he had a pretty good size record collection, so a lot 
I would hear through him, you know. I first heard The Pretenders. You know, we had some Beatles. My parents weren't, you know, I didn't have the situation. So many songwriters are like, I grew up with my parents, you know, turning me on to the greats when I was five years old or whatever. We didn't really have that. I think my parents were sort of incidental music uh, fans. They didn't have tons of records of their own or... Right. Um, but then, you know, by the time I was in about eighth grade, um, I was, you know, starting to buy more records myself. And that's really when I started to get into um, a lot of British punk new wave invasion things. Uh, I liked a lot of the more melodic people, uh, XTC, mm. um, the Buzzcocks, uh Elvis Costello, I was a huge fan of, yeah. and it was really kind of from from Elvis Costello and like Nick Lowe. Uh, those were people that really made me want to write songs. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I understand that you joined a, a local band called The Specs when you were in high school that was mainly playing cover songs, but you were also experimenting with four track cassette recording and and making demos of some of your early original material and I'm curious was your early songwriting process fairly intertwined with the production process of kind of you know figuring out how to work with multiple tracks and and was that all kind of tied together or would you write a song and then go figure out how to put it down um that's a good question a really good question I think that in some ways they were tied together I work for a a music store called Deets Music. That was another, you know, great experience because I got to be around guitars all the time. I had to tune all the guitars in the place and clean them up yeah. all the time. But, you know, music gear, I really got, you know, kind of immersed in at that point. And that was right when the first of those cassette four-track type recorders were coming out. Yeah. I honestly can't remember which one I had first, I kind of think it was Fostex, like a cheap four-track cassette player. Right. Now, by cheap, I mean, you know, it probably took me several paychecks to pay it off. <laughs> right. I want to say they were maybe three or $400 or something. I'm not right. 100% sure on that. So it was like a big deal to That's get a one. fortune at that age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was fascinated by, like, the ability to sing something and then put harmonies on top of my voice. Hmm. And so that that process, you know, it was at the same time I kind of started writing songs. I really didn't understand how to do it. Um, and I think that's because, I mean, at least for me, um, writing has never been so much about the technical side of things as about finding a sort of magic spot kind of in my brain in the universe, you know, where um, I can just let something flow, you know. And once I kind of discovered that, I was off and running and did did a lot of songwriting. Well, after you finished uh, high school in the early 1980s, you enrolled in the University of Georgia in Athens, which was just beginning to uh, become widely known as this musical hotbed that uh, gave the world REM, B-52s, Indigo Girls, Widespread Panic, Love Tractor, The Wigs, and all these different groups. 
Um, and I understand it was really the music more than the particular school that uh, drew you to Athens. Talk a bit about how you ended up there. I would buy a magazine called New York Rocker from New York and read about 45. And I read an article about uh, an REM, their first 45 on hip tone records. And I ordered it in the mail. And uh, it was Radio Free Europe with a song called Sitting Still on the B-side. Right. And I really liked the song Sitting Still. And I was just kind of something about it, you know. It had that sort of a special thing, some little turn of melody or something that kind of made me feel something, you know, inside. And uh, lo and behold, R.E.M. came to uh, Lincoln to play a show at our our rock club that was called the the Drumstick, where I would kind of hang out with people from the Specs. You know, I got in when I was really underage. I would still get to go to the rock show because the owner would just sort of let me in, you know. And I gave, I was already writing songs when I met R.E.M. at the Drumstick um, because I gave uh, a cassette to Michael Stipe and he wrote me a postcard afterwards and said he really liked my songs, which, you know, meant just the world to me, you know, to have that kind of encouragement. Yeah. To receive a postcard from Michael Stipe, I mean, my word, uh, all this but, is... but I have to stress, nobody knew who R.E.M. were yet. That's even better. They were just <laughs> You know, I right. met them, yeah. all they put out was their own 45. Um, so, you know, they were just kind of starting to get out there and, and break out. And they really did it through, you know, hard work touring everywhere and they went, you know, there probably were a hundred people at their show the first time I met them. So uh, they were sort of becoming bigger and bigger while I was still in high school. Yeah. And then I got, you know, um, postcards from Linda Hopper, um, who was in a band with Michael's sister, Linda Stipe. And they were saying, you know, come down to Athens and play at the 40 Watt Club. And so... You know, I got it in my head, I'm going to go to University of Georgia when I get out of high school. Hmm. And my parents were kind of like, why do you want to go there, you know? (laughs) Well, you joined Michael Stipe's sister Linda's band, Oh OK, as a guitarist, but you were also writing songs for other projects, and you had your own band, uh, The Buzz of Delight, which released an EP called Sound Castles in 1984. I'd like to know about how your time in Athens shaped you as a songwriter. Well, it was, you know, so different from where I grew up. You know, the, it had Athens had a real vibe of the Old South. There were, you know, antebellum mansions um, there, you know, that had, you know, and just the hanging trees and the sort of heat and humidity. And it, it had a very uh, romantic kind of thing about it for me, you know, that sort of history. And it seemed really exotic. You know, I was really a kid, you know, I went down there right out of high school and everybody else were older and knew more and had done more music, you know, than I had. So to some degree, I was kind of like a fly on the wall. And I was lucky that I had so many people who were nice to me and sort of accepted me into, you know, hanging out around this stuff. Um, Just lots of the bands 
Love Tractor, uh, Pylon, all, all these bands that I'd sort of been a fan of already from their independent records, you know, I got to know them a little bit, you know. And so that encouragement had to have been just giant for me. Mm, yeah. Well, ultimately, you left your gig as the guitarist in the band OOK, and by 1985, the buzz of delight had broken up, too. And that was kind of the start of your journey as a solo artist, which began with your debut album titled Inside on CBS Records in 1986. Tell us how the opportunity came up to record for a major label and how you approached the process of writing that first record. You know, it seemed like I was in Athens for a really long time, but it really, I really was only there from summer of 83 to summer of 85. So uh, just for two years. And at that, in, I guess May of 85 was when um, I moved to New York and uh, had gotten that spring, this development deal with Columbia Records. And that really kind of disturbed the whole picture of me in Athens in this kind of, you know, dreamy situation because um, then I had sort of, a lot of people had opinions about it. Right. And everybody thought the way you become successful is you tour and tour and build a following with like a band and then, you know, you get a record deal and you, you know, move forward. I just had this thing where they said, we'll give you money for gear and you can keep working on writing songs and figuring out who you are. Wow. And, and some Athens people that I knew, they were really, like, they didn't like that. There's <laughs> just something right. for some reason, you know. <laughs> I don't quite understand why. And I'm honestly not even sure who. Maybe it wasn't that many people, but, you know, I probably felt really self-conscious or something. Yeah. <laughs> but there was this general sort of negative thing, like I didn't sort of deserve to um, have just come through Athens, and <laughs> and then suddenly I was working with a record sure. label. <laughs> it was very different for me, and how I worked on my music was very different. As we said, I was making these multi-track recordings by that time, and playing, you know, a lot of instruments on them and doing all the singing myself. So it was, you know, by that time I had found the thread of just where music was kind of coming from in me. You know, your first two solo records, uh, Inside and, and Earth, those were very much driven by you playing a lot of the instruments and, and doing a lot of the parts yourself. Um and, you know, while both those albums were, were critically well-received, the, the big commercial breakthrough, of course, came with your third album, Girlfriend, and, and the lead single, Divine Intervention. That album was created with more of this kind of live band aesthetic, and I'm curious if that reflects sort of a different side of your songwriting personality, because now it's almost less about you 
alone, you know, creating multi-tracks and it's about letting these other musicians into the process. You know, was that, was that kind of a, a, a stretch for you to do that? Um, not exactly. I mean, it happened pretty naturally. Um, there's a certain thing about being a solo artist where it's kind of lonely, you know? Mm. I mean, and I just found that when I worked with other people and they brought something kind of of their own, it was just like kind of more fun for me, you know? Uh, I got married really young. I was married for six years uh, to my first wife. And we had just um, split up uh, before, uh, shortly before Girlfriend. And um, I decided I was going to try and play the drums. So I think I had a little drum kit that I'd acquired. And so I set up these drums. I didn't know at all how to play drums. But I started playing live drums for my demos. And I was sending them to uh, a friend of mine, Russell, who became my manager. And he was like, wow, this is like Neil Young and Crazy Horse or something. Hmm. And I remember I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I know I have a terrible voice, you know, like Neil Young or whatever. (laughs) I really didn't know about how great Neil Young was, you know. And, you know, of course, now I love Neil Young's voice, I love all his music, all those things, but at the time, I didn't really get what Russell was talking about, so he sent me tapes of Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere and, you know, great Neil Young stuff, and then that became kind of like a feedback loop where I realized, even though I'd always felt like I should be part of sort of the future and do something that was not like anything... And kind of the most boring thing to me, because I was such a melody lover, was just kind of plain old blues-oriented rock. That all changed, and Mm. I I felt that it was so much easier to feel like myself doing it organically, kind of like that, where, you know, the only thing I'd been doing before that was different was I would use drum machines on my demos, you know? So... uh, so it was really when I started playing those live drums on my demos that set the stage for Girlfriend and mm-hmm. what I, what I wanted it to be like, you know. Yeah. You know, there was uh, a point when I was in college that I was going through a breakup and whenever I really wanted to like wallow in my own sadness, my personal soundtrack was your song, uh, You Don't Love Me. Because you don't love me Greg Lease plays some great steel guitar parts on that, which was a pretty unique thing for a pop rock record in 91 to have steel guitar on it. And I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts on on that song in terms of the writing process and and the production approach. This guy, Steve Robofsky, in New York, he hooked me up 
with Jules Shear, and he got me to write with Jules. Jules is an incredible songwriter at the, at the time, um, had a song on Cindy Lauper's huge record, and he had made a couple solo records. He made one with Todd Rundgren, and uh, Jules played a acoustic show at um, the Knitting Factory, and afterwards I met Greg Lease, who was uh, was friends with him. They had played together in a group called the Funky Kings um, from L.A. Right. Wasn't Jack Temption in that band? Yes, Jack was in the band, yeah. that's right. I had gotten into uh, Graham Parsons when I was in Athens. Right. Um, I think through a tape that uh, Peter Buck made, um, it had... Sid Barrett on one side, and the other side was the Graham Parsons album. <laughs> and uh, something about the Graham Parsons, especially when he did melancholy kind of things, just really got me. And met Greg. We were outside on the street from the Knitting Factory, and I was like, do you know, like, Sneaky Pete kind of, you know, pedal steel and he was like yeah totally i love all that stuff right and so that's where i kind of got the idea to have him play and you know you don't love me was one of those songs that's really melancholy and uh you know it it had a lot of sort of feeling that i felt you know in it and uh to me greg's part just made it so fantastic, you know, mm. so yeah. it definitely wasn't lost on me um, how great it was having him play pedal steel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we're going to talk about the Girlfriend album, of course, we have to talk about the title track, which hit the top 10 on Billboard's mainstream and alternative rock charts. I want to love somebody. You need to get back in the arms of a good friend. And I need to get back in the arms of a girlfriend. Girlfriend was one of the demos I made when I decided I would play drums. Huh. And it's so <laughs> uniquely tied to my weird drumming because it has all those stops and starts which are just like I did on the demo you know so it's very odd you know the way the drums work on it um, but uh, I remember my manager or uh, Russell who was to become my manager um, for Girlfriend uh, he had started managing the Indigo Girls um, who were breaking out of Atlanta he was like this is really cool you know and to me it was it was all right and everything, but it was, you know, not like those melancholy songs that meant more to me. Yeah. It was kind of a throwaway rock song, you know. And then it really, once we recorded it for Girlfriend, Russell became obsessed with it. And he was really, he was the one who believed it could be on rock radio. I, you know, I thought he was nuts. And he's right. like, this could be on rock radio, you know. And um, the first single actually was Divine Intervention, and it started to do well on college radio, and that was really the springboard from which they were able to release 
uh, girlfriend to, you know, more uh, commercial level of, of uh, radio. Yeah. And, you know, both those things just kind of slowly happened over the course of kind of a year. And then before I knew it, it was kind of like people were asking me, like, you know, how does it feel you're having such a successful record? And I'm like, I am, you know, <laughs> like, sort of, you know, I so cared about recording and doing music and stuff, but I was never, I never could conceive that I would actually have success. I cared about getting a record made. So yeah. to me, success was just that I made records, you know? Well, and I want to kind of piggyback off what you were saying, because, you know, when you put out your next album, Altered Beast, in 1993, you know, you continued to have success, like with the single The Ugly Truth, which was another top five hit on Billboard's alternative rock chart. <laughs> That was the first time when you know when you made Altered Beast. That was the the first record that you ever had to write and record after kind of finding that national commercial success. Was having that kind of benchmark now in terms of your public profile or or your industry profile? Did that did did you feel um, pressure at that point? Kind of writing your first uh, album as a commercial you know, success. It's a great question, and you know what I would say is. I should have felt pressure. <laughs> I should have felt like a lot of pressure. But instead, I sort of felt like I can do whatever I want. You know mm. what I mean? Right. Like, instead of going, I need to, like, you know, make a really good record and have some songs that'll get on the radio and all of that, I was more like, I'll do whatever I want. So in a lot of ways, Altered Beast was kind of defiant. It was, you know, weirder than Girlfriend. I think, you know, one of the things going on is, you know, m many, many, many years later, I was uh, uh, diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. Mm. And the interesting thing about, um, which I think, you know, is probably very helpful in writing songs, you know. And uh, one of the things, like, I really see clearly when I look back at Altered Beast is I had this kind of split personality that was emerging because of the amount of work I kind of had to do for Girlfriend, you know, I was constantly playing shows, constantly doing meet and greets. And uh, all of that put enough pressure on me that I was sort of cracking. You know, already I was kind of, you know, I feel like part of me was this kind of monstrous um, kind of... Uh, angrier, more troubled kind of thing. And then there was this whole other part of me that was like nice and romantic and sort of like, you know, um, uh, totally different than that other side. And I even thought of songs on Altered Beast as being from one guy or the other, you know, like, um, you know, Dinosaur Act was by like the monster guy. 
and then um, someone to pull the trigger or something was by the the you know moody melancholy person or something. Yeah. Um, so it was really really that amount of work really kind of made me see aspects of myself that I didn't quite understand yet, you know. And when Altered Beast came out, you know, the label seemed to like it, you know, along in the process. Um, but there was a general reaction to it that it was not as good as Girlfriend and that it was weird and that it sort of sounded weird. But Girlfriend had been successful enough that the record still sold quite a few records and I was still able to go out and be building my touring and, and all that. The other thing that really came to a head with, uh, I guess, once we were touring for Altered Beast is I'd had fear of flying growing and growing to the point where it became almost where it was causing me to have kind of mini nervous breakdowns. And it was during Altered Beast that I made a pact with my manager, Russell, that I wasn't going to fly at all. And so I literally went from Altered Beast on for eight years, never flying on a plane. Wow. Mm. Which was incredibly difficult to do, and it shows how bad a problem I had. And I just, you know, like so many people that kind of need to be treated, I resisted, you know, being treated for it. And it really took me, you know, until I think it was about 2002 or three that I finally was like, you know, help me. What should I do, you know? That changed my ability to go out and play shows and to take in the audience and what they were feeling in a way that I'd kind of never been able to do before, you know, and just sort of have a chance at feeling sort of normal, you know. But but Altered Beast was sort of the peak of, of uh, you know, pre-treated, pre-diagnosed hmm. uh bipolarness you know i think of it as kind of showing it the most you know yeah. well in 1995 you released the album 100 percent fun uh featuring the lead-off single we're the same and that album was produced by brennan o'brien who was just everywhere at the time uh primarily known then for his work with stone Temple pilots and pearl jam but what can you tell us about working with brendan and what what did he bring to the table creatively well you know it was it was scary at first he, you know, he kind of, you know, was a very direct guy who sort of, you know, had no fears in the world, you know, which was really different from me. You know, I was a person who kind of feared everything on on a deeper level, you know. And he was kind of, you know, they were, um, he and the, you know, assistant engineer, Nick, they would all like, you know, go outside and play basketball and be like, you know, kind of sports guys and stuff. And I was like, <laughs> Totally not that, you know what I mean? So um, it was. I was a little bit of a, you know, wimpy, weakling kind of guy kind of compared to Brendan, you know? Yeah. Um, but he was the deeply, deeply musical person. And I think he dug what I was doing and what my songs were like. And he um, just helped. We just made a record we liked, you know, he said, you know, I think if we just do something we like, then other people like, like it too. Mm. It turned out to be good. 
That 100% Fun album um, also included Sick of Myself, which is one of your best known songs. Sick of Myself I had written before I went out to record with Brendan. And in fact, we recorded it on a night where Brendan had to be at some something, like something he had to go to with his wife or some event he had to go to. And I said, you know, I want to stay and try and maybe demo a couple things. And so uh, Sick of Myself, we Rick and I played the backing track for that when Brendan wasn't even there. It was just Nick and... Uh, Brendan came back afterwards and heard it, and he was like, this is great. We have to, like, use it, you know. So it was, you know, sort of just by chance that I, you know, it wasn't in the batch of songs that we planned to record, uh, but it, you know, got recorded, and then Brendan made it sound just like kind of rocking and fun, you know. And uh, what was wonderful to me about it was to get a sentiment like uh, like the song had, I'm sick of myself when I look at you, you know. Um, <laughs> it's very, very unusual, and especially at that time, but really I'm sure at all, <laughs> all times in music history, to have a single that's on the radio have a deeper kind of thing about it. Yeah. You know, usually it was the songs that were more slight, um, things that were more just kind of fun, you know, like the way Girlfriend had been just kind of a pickup line, yeah. you know, um, uh, to have a song have success that had the sort of lyrics that Sick of Myself had made me really pleased. Like, I was really glad that that was a song that sort of got big because it, it you know, more showed the me that was there underneath, kind of, you know. 1997 saw the release of Where You Get Love from the Blue Sky on Mars album, and I, I can't help but notice that the lettering on that album cover, it's its pretty reminiscent of Yes. Um, and you can Oh, it's s- not reminiscent. It was, <laughs> I got Roger Dean, who did the, all those Yes covers, too. He actually did the album cover oh, for Blue Sky on Mars. Well. And, you know, I was trying to force these things together. I was a big fan of when the first Mars uh, landers in uh, the 70s, the Viking landers, yeah. you know, I called Jet Propulsion Laboratory and got them to send me a panoramic photo wow. of the surface of Mars. They literally sent me this, like, mounted poster board thing <laughs> wow. from me calling them, and I would have been, you know, I guess 11 or something, <laughs> oh, when geez. it was 76, I think, when those landed. Um, so I would have been 11 or 12, and uh, I was really into Mars. And then there were going to be these new rovers that summer after Blue Sky on Mars came out. Um, you know, the record label hated the cover. They didn't <laughs> understand, like, the photo of Mars being cool. Um, in general, they hated the title. Brendan tried to talk me out of the title. It was like I got a lot of people, like, you know, were trying to hassle me about things on that record 
but it was kind of what I felt. I thought it'd be fun to use the Roger Dean lettering with um, a real photo of Mars. Yeah. I got to go to Jet Propulsion Laboratory you know, to their photo archives and spend tons of time digging up photos from uh, those original missions, which we used on uh, on the album cover. And, you know, to me, it made sense. I mean, that album was kind of ultra-poppy um, and a little different. We used some more sort of synthesizers and things on it. Um, well, you know, it's it's so, interesting because, you know, to, to sort of uh, reference a, a, a prog band and then to have a, a poppy record with, with some synths and things like that, you know, we talk about, like, a, a genre like power pop, and, and I'm not sure that any artist loves being, you know, just genre to death. Um, but your name tends to be associated with the phrase power pop. Um, That's right. And I'm yeah. curious to know if that means anything to you. Um, you know, the, some of these, you know, you look at people, bands that are called punk, and that's considered a very important ethic to stay with, and is this punk enough, and is this whatever. The, yeah. Does the phrase power pop mean anything to you? Does it annoy you, or do you sort of like the association with, with those other bands and with that sound? I, I like the association. I generally love other things that are power pop, especially, you know, the historical stuff from the, you know, raspberries and cheap trick. Really, I think of, you know, the Beatles as, as being power pop, you sure. know. Um, I am flattered to be part of any genre, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's kind of better than if I had no genre, you sure. know? I really like power pop kind of music. It's sort of like revved up, you know, Beatles music or something, you know, yeah. and and I love loved them, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when you, when you talk about you know bringing you know synths in on on Blue Sky on Mars or bringing in you know psychedelic influences on the In Reverse album, but then you know you also kind of have this rootsy uh, singer songwriter side. And and as the new millennium dawned, you and and Sean Mullins and Pete Droge recorded one studio album together under the band name The Thorns. And I always really liked that that record. And I'm curious if you each brought songs to the table and and just kind of each came in with your own stuff, or if you guys really collaborated together in terms of the creation of the material that would form that album. Yeah. Um, well, usually there was some germ of an idea that somebody had. Um, but we really did try to write the songs together. You know, the time with the Thorns was hard for me because I was really conflicted about it. It was, you know, really it started because Russell, my manager, called me one day and he said, these guys are doing some recording down the hill from you, will you go down there and write something with them? And, you know, I'd never met Sean before. I'd never met Pete Droge before, even though Droge and uh, Brandon O'Brien, you know, had a big uh, connection. Hmm. You know, I and so we went down there and we did a couple songs, and the idea that I brought, we turned into this song called I Can't Remember, which became the first single.
we did this song and we sang it and we did it like, you know, on Thursday and Friday. There was somebody who was paying for those sessions for them, you know. And so we played it for this guy and we literally on Monday I got a call from Russell and they're like, They wanna sign you to can't remember what label are we on there. I guess it's just Sony by then or they said, We want you guys to make an album and with a band name and you know, we're really excited about it. <laughs> and so I felt really conflicted about it because I didn't know how well I mixed with those guys. Right. I kind of felt like I was more weird and troubled and all these things that kind of they weren't as much. Although no. I think getting to know Sean, he also has a side to him that's um, really uh, had some some deep, you know, emotional stuff going on, you know. Um I think Pete was a little more poppy and, and the most kind of rootsy of all of us. Mm. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of ideas. So, you know, probably a lot of stuff on the album comes from Pete. Um, but really, we tried to have each of us bring ideas. And then we helped flesh out and make those songs, you know, for each other. Well, the early 2000s found you collaborating with Hanson on the title track of their album, Underneath, as well as with Gary Lewis of the Jayhawks on that band's Stumbling Through the Dark from their album, Rainy Day Music. No less, no more than No less, no more than Try to attach a meaning to words that you've heard Stumbling How does stepping out to write with other artists kind of sharpen you as a writer for your own projects? Um, I would say it was, it, it always felt difficult to me. I always kind of felt, and I think it was because <clears throat> my personality, I never really wanted to push my thing on anyone, you know? So if I got in a room with other people, it was usually their idea that we sort of worked on because I didn't have the gumption to sort of go in and go, let's do my idea, you know? Um, so it was something I think I wasn't very good at and doing the thorns, you know, was really good for me in that it did get me out of my shell some and sort of forced me to kind of, it was kind of like being thrown in the deep end of the swimming pool or something. I had to figure out how to work with others and how to kind of find my place in the thing. And I think that probably that experience made it easier for me to collaborate with other people in general, right. yeah. um, probably more so than I'd ever kind of done before. Well, I guess that probably helped lead into your collaboration with Susanna Hoffs. Um, you know, you guys did those Under the Covers albums, um, you know, with these versions of songs from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, you know, that, uh, both of you being great songwriters, um, how did that influence the material that you selected to cover? Well, you know, we're both, fans of, especially we were huge fans of 60s stuff. Um, you know, it, it, it the genesis of the idea of working together was I said, you know, I'd love to produce you sometime and we could, you know, write write an album together and you'd be the, it would be a Susanna Hoffs record, you know. Yeah. 
And she was talking to a label called Shout Factory at the time, who um, ended up putting out our covers record. And it was really Shout Factory's idea, like, they didn't want us to write songs. They were like, we want you to do something that's more of a novelty, where, like, maybe you're covering, I don't know if they said do only 60 songs or not, honestly, but that's what became of the first record, we, what we decided to do. Yeah. And... uh but I really wasn't much of a covers person. I never learned other people's songs much, not even things I loved. Like, I didn't sit down with the Beatles and get a songbook and figure out the chords or anything ever. You know, so I never really knew how to play songs. So it was a really great experience for me when I came to do the stuff with Susanna because I really was able to pick songs. We picked so many songs that we liked or we picked, records that sounded like they'd be fun for us to try to do, yeah. you know. Um, so it was great experience for me, I think, in engineering in general, just working on so much stuff where I played a lot of it, I engineered it all, um, I mixed it all. Uh, it was really a great learning experience for that kind of thing. I don't know exactly what I got for my own songwriting. I don't think it was connected to me exactly. You know, when I went to do my own thing, it was just a very different mindset than doing the covers records. But, um, but over, overall, it was just good experience. You know, I got the bulk of my, you know, pro tools learning, you know, happened during that time. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about the song Ivory Tower from your 2011 album, Modern Art. I understand that that song was actually built around uh, the drum pattern. It was. Yeah. 
it's like a band, and I think they're supposed to kind of be like modeled off the Talking Heads. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And the girl in the band, who's Maya Rudolph, has her own hit, and so that was kind of what my song was supposed to be. <laughs> and so it was a trip to see that episode because it's Maya Rudolph doing it, right. sounding really eighties. It's just so crazy. <laughs> um, cool. So you know, I've been. Um, been uh, lucky to have that connection with Fred. He's, you know, a really creative guy. Yeah, we just met him by accident. Susanna Hobbs and I were visiting the set of Mad Men. She and her husband knew uh, Matt Weiner, who was the guy that created it. Right. And so we went one day to watch them filming and kind of meet um, some of the cast and have lunch with Matt. And we were leaving lunch, going to look at one of the sets of one of the houses, the homes in the show. And uh, we walked past Fred Armisen, and I went, it's Fred Armisen. (laughs) And, like, he heard me. And so then, like, we felt like we should stop and, you know, say hi to him. Right. And then we all just kind of hit it off, and he came to my house a couple times after that. And uh, that's how how we met him. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Matthew, I'm a happily married man. I have been for over 10 years. Why did my heart sink a little bit when you just said Susanna Hoff's husband? (laughs) (laughs) Susanna sure had a lot of guys with that crush on her. You know, I mean, heck, I had a crush on her back in the day. Right. Um, You know, we are so much kind of like brother and sister that I never thought of it (laughs) any other way, like when we were working together, you know. I saw the effects of of her on other people yeah, and right. how much people hold her as this uh, symbol of, you know, uh, beautiful young 80s. Yeah, uh, <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, she's she's been married a super long time. And, I, you know, I have been. My wife and I have been married, uh, I want to say, 26 years wow. now. Well, um, and she was, you know, the girlfriend. She was, I'd been waiting. That did stick yeah, at that time, and I'm so glad I had her to go through the experience with. You know, I yeah. think I'd have been so lost if I didn't have a home scene going on, you know, mm-hmm. that I could kind of fall into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, five or six years ago, you moved back to Nebraska and embarked upon a creative renaissance, really, that, that has resulted in two studio albums from the same sessions, um, Tomorrow Forever in 2017 and then Tomorrow's Daughter in 2018. What can you tell us about the role that relocating to a different space played in your creative process? My answer really would kind of be that the important thing for me is the space in my home where I make music. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that matters a lot more. Just being alone and having a space I'm comfortable in kind of matters a lot more than where I am geographically. Yeah. I don't think that we have moved back to Nebraska if I felt like it mattered where I was. And, you know, especially with the Internet, um, I can even, you know, record with people from the coasts or anywhere, really. Yeah. Um, you know, we I got, you know, Rod Argent played piano at his home in England, and, you know, mm. they email it to me and I fly it in 
in my home studio. Yeah. And, you know, so my, my home studio setup was always really important to me and kind of my my version of a man cave that I always had, but it was more like a recording cave or whatever. So I don't know. You know, I think early on, a long time ago, it also was about the people I met, you know, being in New York when I happened to hook up with with Richard, with Bob Quine, uh, with Richard Lloyd, with Lloyd Cole, you know, who was a great friend to me during the time of Girlfriend. Um, You know, people who encouraged me you know, and friends I had in my long time in Los Angeles, you know, the people and all of that, you know, are important and special, you know. But I always felt like I could go in the middle of the woods and do my music there. Yeah. I, to me, it's such a solitary thing, especially in terms of the writing. Um, but it's a little different now also in that... Um, I don't make demos and then make recordings. Instead, my that's anything I'm working on is potentially a record sure. because Pro Tools is such good quality now. And so that just grew over time. You know, we when we made Girlfriend, we did the little backwards snippets in a very early version of Pro Tools that was only stereo at two tracks then. Hmm. Well. And you know, what it became over time was an ability for all of us to have our own studios and kind of work out of our own um, homes, you know. And it it's, you know, sad in that with the record business somewhat collapsing, um, kind of a lot of the classic studios went out of business. Right. And because everybody kind of had a home studio where they could work, you know, for free. Yeah. Yeah, and now cool. two yahoos can have a podcast too. You know, yeah, for thanks reason. to Pro Tools. Yeah, you've got a great <laughs> podcast to talk about this stuff on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. This has been a lot of fun and and great to hear the the kind of the inside look at the process uh, on these great records. And uh, and we just appreciate you uh, spending time with us. Well, it's my pleasure, and you guys are doing a really uh, cool you know service for people to be able to learn about this aspect that's so kind of mysterious thank you man hope our paths cross again same here well thanks guys thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment now to subscribe to songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com as a reminder you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram by searching for songcraft show all one word And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.